With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Weekside Podcast. Alongside Sports Illustrated senior writer Jenny Vrentis, I'm Connor Orr, and we kick off the show um, with a mock draft scandal that's just mired in controversy and uh you know it's uh, this has been uh anything but a typical uh a typical year going into the draft but as many of you guys know Jenny myself and our uh our fellow NFL reporter Albert Breer compete uh in our mock draft competition every year and uh, much like our electoral system, there does not seem to be one way to look at this. Uh, both sides are uh, declaring victories, and there are third parties involved now. And so, uh, Jenny, you know, we, we can't just have nice things anymore. Everything is 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 very complicated. So I, I'm 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 on the verge of resigning as the accountant behind this, which I guess I should divest anyway because I have a personal interest in the outcome. Well, my understanding is by the same scoring system that was used the last two years, Connor Orr was the winner of this year's mock draft challenge. So I think we should just go with that. So just to be transparent, here's how I score. Uh, You get three points for a direct hit, which is player, team, uh, and slot. You get two points for player and team. And then you get one point for, you know, all sorts of various things like um, player in the slot, team and position, uh, all, all sorts of various things like that. Like two, there's two or three of those subcategories. I did add an additional category this year before the draft, but it did not have um, an outcome on the standings, um, which was a prediction of uh, special events. And so... Uh, I technically, for example, awarded myself half a point because the Bears traded up for a quarterback and the Giants traded down, which I thought merited a half point consideration. Um, but um, my lead over Albert was such that those did not matter. Um, it, it didn't factor into the equation. But still, uh, there's a lot of great sites now that keep us honest and great us um mock draft report i think is one and they listed albert as their 10th overall um and i think that theirs has uh, uh some of their scoring algorithm has to do with the closeness to the player in the slot so for example um i had the bears taking you know somebody in the first round that they took in the second round and so uh, you know, that player didn't go until 30 picks later. And so that hurts me, whereas maybe Albert had that person three picks before the Bears, but gets another point for that. So either way, um, you know, uh, we're, we're going to we're going to see we're going to fight it out in court. You know, that's uh, that's that's what we do at this point. So well, that seems a little extreme. <laughs> 
We could just retire the challenge. We have each won one time. I think it's a good point to retire it for future years. Do I have to go down with an asterisk next to mine? (laughs) It's up to you, Connor. It's all your decision. You're the greater. I didn't know about this new half point thing, by the way. So I, I, and again, I think that many people would uh, accuse me of adding that in to benefit uh, my score in particular which i understand uh but i you know as an oracle and you're trying to make life you know people think this is glamorous like i go step outside into a uh into a swimming pool full of uh melted gold bullion here but you know oracles have to work to you know uh to put food on the table and so every time you get a little bit of whiff of something you want some credit for it you know all right. So. Well, I would have taken that into account had I known. Um, <laughs> I also felt like, you know, in years past, you had the most disadvantage, this disadvantageous position. This year I did because a lot of information came out in that final week. Yes. And um, you also did too, Connor. <laughs> so yes. I did not have that benefit. Yeah. And so here's the other thing that needs to be mentioned, right, is that um, Jenny was only like three or four points off and she went the furthest out and had the best back half of the mock draft out of any of the three of us, uh, which to me, again, if, you, if you're grading with all this stuff into consideration would, I mean, that, that's like, that's incredible. So I think you should take a, a victory lap for that. That was uh, that was a very well done mock draft. Well, no like, credit where credits due, Connor. I believe in your scoring system. You are the winner <laughs> this year, but um, I think yeah, let's just retire this in future years. We've each yeah. won once. I think it's perfect place to end it. I think so too. Um, all right, so we have a lot to a uh, lot to discuss. Uh, it was fun, you know. The two of us got to join uh, the Monday Morning Podcast with Gary Grambling, and it's crazy how you know you you think you're going to sit down and talk about the draft for 15 minutes, and an hour and a half later, it's like we're still not even close to digging through all the stuff that happened here. And so, let's jump into uh, news topic number one because uh, there's still just so much to get to and uh, a lot of stuff that I'm eager to hear your takes on. So, I'll read the first one here. Um, Stop us if you've heard this before, but Aaron Rodgers has a problem with Packers management and is artfully letting the rest of the world know about it without actually letting the rest of the world know about it. The player with arguably the best wide receiver and running back tandem in the NFL and historically one of the better offensive lines in the league over the past 10 years feels he does not get enough help and that GM Brian Gutekunst pulled a Brutus by drafting Jordan Love without notifying him first. I think we all know where this is going, Jenny, but tell us, where is this going? Well, I don't know if I can say with any certainty, Connor, what's going to happen. And maybe you feel differently. I still feel like there's a very good chance that Aaron Rodgers ends up in Green Bay just because at this point in the offseason, there aren't that many options left. There aren't that many other places for him to go. I know Denver has been mentioned as a prime contender and they certainly could still make a move, but it's possible maybe he holds out the season or he, you know, makes a stand and, you know, the the gulf between him and the team is just too wide to be repaired at this point. Uh, It's clear that they will have to do a lot to mend this rift that has developed this offseason, and that really traces back to last offseason. The easiest way to mend a rift is to make sure it doesn't exist in the first place, and I think you see a lot of times when teams draft a quarterback, they give their starting quarterback a heads up. Now, there's a difference between drafting a quarterback in a mid-to-late round 
There's even a difference in drafting a quarterback when they fall to you in the first round, but to trade up to get a quarterback and to not give the quarterback who is a Super Bowl winner, who is an MVP, the heads up beforehand, you can understand how that would create tension. I'm wondering if Brian Gutekunst had to do it all over again. Um, and I understand like some of this stuff happens in a really hot moment, um, you know, and, and you have to make a, a last minute decision. But do you think if he would have had the chance to do it again and, you know, Aaron Rodgers, is, as he's recounted, sitting there drinking tequila and watching the draft, do you call him the second, you know, if you had a chance to do it over again and just be like, hey, look, we're about to do this. And and I don't know the answer to that. I mean. I would say if they if Jordan Love was that high on their draft board and say, for example, that, you know, because, again, a lot of this stuff involving Aaron Rodgers seems to make it out into the press when it's advantageous for him. If if you were thinking about drafting Jordan Love and he was that high on your board, do you tell Aaron Rodgers at the risk of this appearing on ESPN two hours before the draft and, and having some of their team jump over you to get the player that you want? I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, do you. I, I don't know what the right answer is there because they know him well enough to know him. And, and I don't know if um, not to say that they couldn't trust him, but maybe there is sort of a, a, a deeper issue there than, Hey, we wanted a quarterback and we didn't feel the need to tell you that. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good, good point. Connor, was there a lack of trust there that pro- prohibited them from having that conversation or, or made them think it wouldn't be a productive conversation to have I think the information campaign on both sides is somewhat interesting. You have Aaron Rodgers at the Kentucky Derby saying he was disappointed that this story got out, even though it's hard to believe it would have gotten out without his okay, at least from the perspective from his side. Then you have, you know, Ian Rappaport from NFL Network uh, reported earlier today that Apparently, in last year's draft, you know, as he recounts that Gutekunst did target a wide receiver, first Justin Jefferson, then Brandon Ayuk, and both were gone. And so then they traded up for Jordan Love, which is also kind of hard to parse through because if they really wanted a receiver and they were set on one of those guys, they probably could have made it happen. And then all of a sudden you swing from getting a receiver for your quarterback to getting a different quarterback. So it's just kind of, there's a lot of different, um, I don't know. A lot of different white rabbits, are, as you would say, being put out there right now. And it's just hard to know what's actually the truth. And it's also hard to know. And the only way we would find out, and it's fascinating in the way that, you know, seeing Tom Brady removed from New England was uh, something that I think didn't teach us all that I think we need to know, but taught us a little bit of what we needed to know about both people. Um, and in that way, how good are is Green Bay just finding undervalued offensive talent versus how good is Aaron Rodgers at maximizing that talent, right? Like if you put Devontae Adams on another team, how good is he? If you put uh, that running back room on another team, how good are they? You know, someone like Robert Tanyan, who scores 10 touchdowns last year, does he sniff that somewhere else in a in another pass-happy offense um, with un- under similar circumstances? I don't know the answer to that. I, I would guess that they wouldn't fare as well, but how much less well and how much is he elevating these guys, you know? Right. That's a great point, too, Connor, because do you say, well, he has Devontae Adams, but is Devontae Adams what he is in part because of Rodgers? I would say Devontae Adams would be pretty special anywhere, but maybe he's a slight degree more special with Aaron Rodgers. So it's just, you know, the, 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 clearly there's a lot of angst right now. And 
I feel bad for Matt LaFleur, who was put in this super awkward position. I mean, apparently he didn't even know that they were going to draft Jordan Love last year. And he was asked about it, of course, uh, after the draft this year and kept saying, I won't let my mind go to that place. You know, Rodgers is our guy. Um, But you could just see that that's a really difficult position to be in because you don't know if there's anything that you can say that will make it better. It seems like a contract, some kind of extension with guaranteed money beyond this season would be a way of showing you mean what you're saying. You'd be putting money behind your words at least. But uh, this has um, apparently been festering behind the scenes for some time. But now that it's out in the open, it's by far the most intriguing player team situation this offseason. I don't want to go as far as to say it's the biggest offseason story because I think it's hard to say that this is bigger than the seriousness of the allegations against Deshaun Watson. And I saw those two kind of being conflated and compared. And I think that's a really unfair thing to do, but in in terms of a football situation and a, what a team will do and what a player will do, I would say this is by far the most intriguing. Just a lot of big little lies, Jenny. And that's really all it is. Um, (laughs) But in terms of where this goes, I mean, I I just don't see, um, you know, you you and I have talked about this a little bit with Gary as well, but I don't see there being an attraction to say I'm going to go then play for uh, Pat Shermer. You know, because I'm not saying Vic Fangio because that really is Vic Fangio runs the defense in Denver and Pat Shermer runs the offense. So you know, is he going to say, yeah, no, I'm going to go play for Pat Shermer. This will this will give me exactly what I want, or I'm going to go play for John Gruden. Um, which you know, I think one phone call to Derek Carr might uh, might convince him otherwise that that's exactly what you want to be doing at that stage in your career. But I, I don't I just don't know what the other options are. And I think that saying, well, I'll just go host Jeopardy for a year um, if that's if that's on the table. I mean, that's, you only do that for 45 days. I, I just don't see that being like the real threat, um, the retirement threat that uh, that everybody's making it out to be. But I don't know. Aaron Rodgers could be on Jeopardy taking veiled shots at the Packers every night for a calendar year. And hey, that wouldn't that be something. But I, I some of this stuff just doesn't add up, and it leads me to believe that a contract would solve the problem, despite the fact that they're all saying that a co- contract would not solve the problem. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it wouldn't make some impact. Yeah, I'm with you on the Jeopardy thing. I thought the whole point of his comments were that there would be enough time in a calendar year to both be the starting quarterback right. for the Packers and to play Jeopardy. And the idea of having to be closer to the Jeopardy set is somewhat immaterial. I mean, it's, you know, if you're in Denver, okay, like maybe you're like an hour or two closer right. via flight. But like, does that make any large of a difference? I, I don't really know. Yeah. And it went from like, you see, yeah, like a maritime thing to, okay, well, I'll just pour all my heart into this and, and do this full time. I don't need football, which he wouldn't have needed football anyway, right? I mean, you already have enough money. You have the acting chops. You have, you're a tremendous on-air personality. You could go do whatever you want. There's plenty of other options than to use poor Jeopardy, which is, what a pop for like, for years. America's oldest and most ignored game show is now like hot in the middle of NFL gossip. Good for Jeopardy, you know? I don't know. You think it's the most ignored? Wouldn't you say Wheel of Fortune is more ignored than Jeopardy? Mm, that's Wheel true. Wheel of Fortune's definitely like the armpit of the game show world. <laughs> that's true. Uh, Maybe that's and, my rentist consensus early ooh, in the show. That's a hot take. Um, <laughs> I would be interested in seeing poll because you know what? I, I don't, I think that there's a lot of jeopardy people and wheel people. Like, I don't think that there's a lot of people who 
tune in at seven and ride it out through eight o'clock. You know, I don't think that there's a lot of, uh, it just seems to, uh, it seems to attract a very, uh, different segment of the population. I don't know. I could be wrong on that. Yeah, I think there is two different viewership groups. It depends on what you're interested in. Um, They're kind of oddly paired, I would say. But maybe that's the point, you know. One audience brings in the other and vice versa. That said, uh, one last word on Wheel of Fortune before we move on here. Uh, My friend's mom is a savant and... She, um, like a lot of people only think that there are Jeopardy savants, but there are Wheel of Fortune savants, and she prides herself on nailing puzzles one to two letters in to these big puzzles, and so she'll just walk by the TV, and the puzzle will just start, and she'll be like, oh, taking out the trash, and like she has like a mind that can put together all these blank spaces and only need like one or two letters, which is very interesting, so... That there is interesting. That's very impressive. Not to say that the the uh, there's not definite skill involved in Wheel of Fortune. So I did not mean to imply no, no. that at all. And and your mom's friend is clearly a testament to that. So <laughs> wheel watchers everywhere, rejoice! All right, what do we have for news topic number two? The San Francisco 49ers have charted a new path organizationally this week. Last week, selecting Trey Lance with the number three overall pick. Like all teams, they seem to be lying about how soon they intend to play their rookie, but for now, Lance will be backing up Jimmy Garoppolo and awaiting an opportunity to see the field. What do we think of the move? Do we like it? Connor, you were all over this from the beginning. And then I switched when it counted. Yeah, but like, you know, I mean, it was it was one miss. I mean, you had you had your mock draft, which was winning in our scoring system would have been even better. So it didn't matter. Mm, I know, but. I, I, I like so the day before the draft, I said to our editor, Mitch Golich, I was like, let's just do Trey Lance at three. And I because that's how I feel. And I, I know it's not going to be him, but I don't care. And Mitch is like, well, do you feel like your obligation is to inform the public of what you think is going to happen? Or is it to put something out there and then uh, that's a bit of a long shot and then celebrate wildly and claim the credit when it does? And I said, obviously, number two. I mean, that's just who I am. But uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, I just at the last minute, it just it swung. And you know what it was for me? It was like. I remember talking to somebody who, um, you know, about the Shanahan belief system and the Shanahan tree and all that stuff. And they kept saying that the most important thing or one of the most important things to them was the idea that a quarterback develop all the necessary skills for being a good quarterback before their body. And so, you know, before you get big and strong, like you have to find a way to be accurate in order to succeed, you know, like almost like a, a Darwinism thing. And then the the body comes along later and they love quarterbacks that are like that. And to me, that was Mac Jones. He's like rail thin for a long time, smaller kid. And I was like, okay, I get it now. And that's why I switched at the last minute, but I'm thrilled that they took Trey Lance because I think that, I mean, I think at this point we're kind of giving Kyle Shanahan too much credit for his status as an offensive guru, but um, he really could take this system into an interesting place that it hasn't been. And as it's being copied all around the NFL, it could evolve to a point that is really exciting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential. There's, If you look at the way Trey Lance plays, you can see him in a Kyle Shanahan offense, and I think that's making a lot of people excited. 
I think you have the ideal situation where you have Jimmy Garoppolo there. So in theory, can start him indefinitely. Now we know Garoppolo has had a lot of injuries the last few years. And so it's possible there's an injury situation that requires the 49ers to play Trey Lance sooner than expected. It's also possible Trey Lance progresses faster than maybe people give him credit for, and he's ready to play sooner than expected. But the ideal situation is to bring a rookie quarterback in where there isn't the pressure to play right away, and you can make that decision when it's best for the player and the player's development. Yeah. I think you and I both agree, though, that we can move on from this. Like the the 49ers now, like taking a, a little peacock walk around the pond pretending that they fleeced a bunch of reporters seems to be to be a little bit like okay you know and to your point you said this on uh the monday morning podcast which i thought was brilliant is you know and and it's a reflection of part of our business is how did everybody become so certain so quickly that it was Mm -hmm. mac jones you know like is that you know that's something that we should probably uh you know red pen in the future and be like you know uh, let's use this as a cautionary tale yeah i mean it 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 was not so much that people were saying, hey, I think it's going to be Mac Jones. This makes sense. That's fine. There's a lot of projections pre-draft. I don't think anybody actually knows anything. I think where it got problematic was people saying it's going to be Mac Jones. It was always Mac Jones. And anyone who thought it was anyone else is stupid, essentially. And clearly that was wrong. And so I do think one of the biggest problems in our profession is taking something that you think you have an indication of, or maybe someone is telling you it may be this and expressing it with greater certainty than you actually have. And that is clearly what happened with Mac Jones. So again, people who mocked Mac Jones to the 49ers, there's nothing wrong with that. A mock draft is a projection. The problem comes in when you say it's absolutely with 100% certainty, Mac Jones, you must shut down all other discussion and it was never going to be anyone else. But that's literally what it was, Connor. It became that. And it just like took on a life of its own. And, you know, from the 49ers perspective, I don't quite get the, like the gloating at this point in time, because what did you gain from it? You traded up to three so that you would get the quarterback you wanted. So whether or not the media knew who you're going to pick or didn't has, has no impact on the direction of your team. And so You know, I'm not a huge fan of like games for the sake of games. Now, listen, if they want to keep it private, I understand that. But if you change your mind, you don't want to lead a guy on. All of that is fine. If if the pick didn't get out, okay, you could say like, what's the reason for not letting the pick get out? But maybe there are decent reasons. I mean, I, I think sometimes you don't want to say something until you're sure of it till the last minute. But the idea that like, oh, we fleeced everybody or like, LOL, like what a what a smokescreen. Like, I don't know. I don't love that either. And like to loud the fact that only you and the general manager knew who it was when you turned the cards in. Like if I'm the quarterback's coach, I'm sitting there being like, okay, you know, good to know. Thank you. You know, (laughs) you're right. Yeah. (laughs) Like that was, you know, the whole time I'm sitting here, like looking at you guys talking in the office, you Mm -hmm. know, like how destructive is that for your staff morale? Yeah, (laughs) that's an interesting point. I mean, we even saw in some of the draft room footage of the Patriots, which I know Connor thought looked um, dark dark and depressing, but um, there were clearly some clips in which Belichick was checking with everybody. And we know that there was like a big focus on him bringing more people into the draft process and collaborating. But in any event, this clip showed him checking, are we good with this? Are we good with this with three or four people before turning in the Mac Jones pick? But, you know, I do think that's an important part of, of any 
major decision like that. Maybe you don't want more voices and ultimately it comes down to the head coach and the GM. But I think you're right, Connor. If you're the quarterback's coach, you have a stake in this and you have an opinion and you're going to play a direct role in, in shaping this player. Um, and so, you know, I'm like even with Tom Brady's drafting, right? Obviously different situations, sixth round pick, but it was the quarterback's coach at the time, Dick Rabine, that had really been stumping for him. And Belichick and Scott Pioli uh, were, you know, in agreement with that decision. But the quarterback's coach was, was directly involved and other people around don't want to take credit for it in retrospect, but they knew that they might pick Brady at some point because all of those people liked him so much. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. I, lo- I loved the Patriots war room, by the way, like who, like if Bill, Bill Belichick looks around and says, are we okay with this? Who's got, <laughs> you know, who's got the mental fortitude to stand up right. and say, you know what, Bill, right. actually, actually uh, with NFL Network here, yeah, I don't think that we need uh, Mac Jones. I, <laughs> I, I, I disagree. Um, That's a great point. That's a great point, yeah. So it's but, a little bit. <laughs> but no, I thought it was, you know what, that shows, I, I think that that shows more maturity and growth in somebody who's already unquestionably the best modern coach in NFL history, that he's willing to bring more voices in to look around and to say, hey, you know, and to be honest, I think he would want somebody to disagree with him. You know, I think that that was Ernie Adams for so long, right? That was his counterpoint, you know, his his ombudsman or whatever. And I think if I'm in San Francisco, it's like, okay, um, you guys did a great job keeping this under wraps. And, you know, maybe I just sound like a bitter mock draft guy and, and sure that there's an element of that. But uh, the other thing, too, is just that you just wonder, like, okay, what else, what other big decisions are being made here when I'm just like, you know, walking into the, you know, every time you see two people go into an office and close the door, are we about to trade for somebody or, you know, what's happening here? Right, right. Well, I think this leads well into our next topic, actually, Connor. Perfect. I love when I do that on accident. Uh, the New England Patriots secured their QB of the future at number 15. Mac Jones told reporters that this is the way that he was secretly hoping it would go all along, which is something you might expect a person who universally thought he was going to go at number three might say. <laughs> Still, Jones represents a new clear vision at the position after the Patriots sort of cobbled together their immediate post-Brady succession plan. So uh, fun podcast gimmick. Jenny, on a scale from one to 10, how confident are you in the Mac Jones experience? 10 being, well, I guess 10 being, we got to define terms here. Um, You don't need to, because I'm going to cop out of giving a number, Connor. Great. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, all I was going to say is I like the new direction, like that, as we referenced a couple minutes ago, Belichick taking this new collaborative approach. The Patriots are doing things differently by necessity. They have to do things differently. The last few drafts have not gone well. Those accrued draft misses led in part to them overspending in free agency. But at the same time, they wanted to take advantage of a partially depressed free agency market. And there was a lot of talk about how Belichick had never drafted a quarterback higher than 62, was it, where Garoppolo was taken. Again, also a skewed stat, which we talked about because he had Brady for most of those years. And then he had, you know, Drew Bledsoe and Bernie Kosar in Cleveland. But the point being is he's now in a very different position than he's ever been in. And so I liked the fact that they just set a new direction. They Their procedures are different. Their way of team building is different. Because it has to be. You can't team build the same t- the same way when you don't have Tom Brady. So 
they they went a different way. They made up for those draft misses by spending a lot in free agency. They sat and waited, took Mac Jones at 15, traded up for Christian Barmore to fortify the run defense. Um, I don't I don't know if it will work. A lot of it clearly depends on if Mac Jones can be productive for the Patriots. But you do have some level of confidence because he's Belichick is getting a honest, completely unvarnished scouting report from his old buddy Nick Saban. He's spent decades cultivating that relationship, which pays off in moments like this. And while he lacks the athleticism, which is clearly where the position is going, and that does raise some concerns, he clearly has a lot of things that the Patriots like. His high accuracy rate, it was what, over 77% in college, a new NCAA record, uh, very few interceptions, he's said to process information well. Not that the other quarterbacks in this class didn't. It's just they were all gone at that point. So we're trying to talk about how he will succeed. Um, So I think there's a good chance. And I think Josh McDaniels understands how to coordinate an offense in today's NFL when your quarterback doesn't have the dual threat of running, as Brady didn't. So I think they can do something with this pick. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that the idea that you know, this all or nothing thinking that, okay, the Patriots are taking a, you know, air quotes, eye roll, prototypical passer in an age of where mobility is getting the job done is just another, you know, symbol of how dated they've become or whatever. I don't think that's necessarily true. And I don't think that a traditional non-mobile dropback passer is going to be out of vogue for so long. The NFL is so cyclical, you know, and there might be a time when, you know, two or three years down the road when everybody's like grasping at straws for other quarterbacks like that again. And maybe, you know, a defense, you know, a great defensive mind comes up with a way to really shut down mobile quarterbacks. And, you know, it goes back the other way. And, you know, I think Belichick's always had a great understanding of that. He was the guy that was changing defenses once a week during the best of his Super Bowl run. You know, they would go, um, they would look completely different every time they hit the field. And every Super Bowl had this like maniacal defense game plan. And so I, I think that there's probably, you know, some intellectual underpinning to this. It's not just, oh, hey, Alabama guy falls to us. And, you know, like you said, I mean, he's still Bill Belichick. And I think that he still deserves the benefit of the doubt. The fact that like anyone even believes that there's like cracks in the foundation here is is kind of ridiculous after seven and nine. And while he's not above criticism, uh, I, I think we wait to see how this plays out because this offense, you know, as much as we're talking about the Kyle Shanahan offense being run successfully in other places, Patriots offense, Josh McDaniels is being run successfully in other places too, most notably in Buffalo, where it's taken Josh Allen to the brink of an MVP season. And I think with that kind of young arm talent available, um, you know, uh, you could get maybe Mac Jones, maybe not to that level, but you could get him somewhere there, um, especially now that you've upgraded all the weapons too. Yeah, uh, and I think last season, as we've talked about several times, was kind of the gap year for the Patriots. They had a league-high op- eight opt-outs. Cam Newton didn't sign with the team until June, and so it kind of became a lost season, basically allowed them to reset. As a result, they get the number 15 overall pick, which sets them on, on a different path. And, you know, there have been times in the past, recent past, when Belichick has made a move that's a little bit uncharacteristic and you wonder what's happening. And it's clear that he had a plan that maybe we didn't realize at the time. 
him signing Stefan Gilmore was a great example. That was a free agent deal that was uncharacteristic for Belichick at the time, but he knew in order to defend the offenses that were coming up through the NFL and to run the defense that he needed to be able to run in this era of the NFL, he needed a strong man corner. So he went out and he paid for one. And it was one he was pretty familiar with having played the Bills twice a year. And so I think that sort of ethos is kind of what's underpinning this offseason as well, is that when there is a clear reason to depart from the way you've always done things, that's what they're going to do. And I'm interested to see how this play, plays out. I, I, I think you couldn't have asked for a, a better reset. Maybe it came for a year later than people would expect it. It wasn't a smooth transition out of the Tom Brady era. But that's also a difficult thing to achieve, as we've seen with the Packers and Rodgers and before that with Favre and Rodgers, right? I mean, there's always so much talk about, all oh, these easy transitions from one to the next. But the reality is a lot of times that's very awkward. And I think that nobody would be happier than Cam Newton going out there and winning that job by a country mile than Bill Belichick. You know, I... It, presuming that he wins it in a way that's not more reflective of Mac Jones's lack of readiness. But, you know, I think that just sets them up better for the future. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I, I would take that quarterback room, Mac Jones and, and Cam Newton over, you know, at least a dozen other quarterback rooms in the NFL right now. So, yeah, I, absolutely, so. Connor. I'm going to go seven, by the way. I'm going to throw a number down. I'm a seven out of ten on Mac Jones, which right. means mm, one Super Bowl. At some point, while Bill, right. Belichick's still there. So there I mean, go. if winning a Super Bowl with Max Jones is a seven, like what's an eight? Well, it's it's hard because ten is it's Tom like Brady, Tom right? Brady, I so, see, right. So you've got to go from from one to six. Basically, seven to ten takes you from one to six rings. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's like <laughs> seven is like one or maybe two rings, and yeah. then like eight is like three or four, maybe like nine yeah. is four or five, and then ten is six. And it depends on how you win them. Like if you if you win the ring, uh, if you win the ring, but you, but you play like Peyton Manning in the second one, then that's like a five. Ooh, and so okay. you know, there's like a lot of you know, there's it, a lot of gradations. Very very complicated grading skill. You know. Well, speaking of Super Bowl <laughs> contenders, really leads in nicely to our next topic. Number four, a pair of embattled general managers, Dave Gettleman and Ryan Pace, emerged as victors of the weekend despite having drastically different experiences. Gettleman, for the first time in his career, traded down to accumulate more picks, while Pace, after taking a massive swing at a quarterback in 2017, moved up to number 11 to take another. Justin Fields has already been described by Bears fans as the most hope-generating prospect since Sid Luckman in the 1950s. What do you make of all these old dogs learning new tricks? Maybe that was the theme of this year's draft, Connor. I think so. Um, I thought... Kevin Seifert over at ESPN.com, I thought, made a good point about Gettleman and called it one of the most noble things that he's seen a general manager do because, I mean, Dave Gettleman is not on solid footing necessarily as a general manager. And how rarely do you see these guys acquiring picks in years that they might not be able to use them, you know? And I thought that that was, I thought that was a good point. Um, but, you know, Gettleman, outside of his time in Carolina has really been a lifelong giant. And, you know, I think that, you know, if, if he moves on from the organization, we'll probably always hope that they do well um, and, and want them to succeed. But I, I thought he did a great job. I mean, this 
was all the things that we've made fun of him for years for not seeming to understand, but probably goes to show that he did and just had a different reason for doing what he wanted to do. But, you know, it shows uh, that it is smarter, especially in these high pressure situations to value picks the next year. I mean, historically, um, it, it's almost like, you know, investing in a stock before a stock goes up and, you know, all that kind of stuff. In 2022, we're going to know more about this draft. Uh, it's going to be a deeper class and and so I think that was a really smart thing. And who knows, a rookie quarterback, you're always kind of juggling there. Maybe that pick is in the top 15 next year, depending on how the Bears do. And so I thought it was a really smart move. Good for him. And and also good for Ryan Pace. I mean, this isn't a Disney story by any stretch of the imagination. This is a GM who probably got to hang on to the job for a little bit too long and now you know got lucky and, and took another big swing. But that said... There's a lot of people in Ryan Pace's spot who would have still been doubling down on Mitch Trubisky to try to make himself look right. And instead, you know, I I do give him credit. He's taken a lot of steps to move the franchise on from that mistake quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, we've seen times when franchises have doubled, tripled down. The Jaguars signed Blake Bortles to a second contract. Like, you know, the Jets signed Mark Sanchez to a second contract. Um, You know, there's a lot of those examples over time where GMs have just been like, no, 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 this is working, this is working. And I I give him credit in in that regard, at least. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things. I mean, almost more important than getting the quarterback right is knowing when to move on if you've gotten them wrong, because there are times that you do get picks wrong. An example that comes to mind is Jason Light got the Jameis Winston pick wrong, and he was drafted number one overall, moved on from him, and signed Tom Brady and won a Super Bowl. So I think both teams knew what their team needed, and they did it. So in the Giants' case, that was, okay, well, we we want a receiver, but the one we – the top three are all gone by the time we're picking. So we're going to trade down, get a receiver that we still like there, accumulate future picks. And then in the second round, you know, they have this one of the best edge rushers in this class. Ojolari falls to them. It's hard not to be excited about that draft if you're a Giants fan. And for the Bears, they went up twice. They saw an opportunity to get Justin Fields, potentially a franchise-changing player, and then they went up to get Tevin Jenkins, who also was a surprise that he was there uh, available for them in day two, was seen by many to be a first-round pick. So I think both of them figured out what their teams needed, and they acted accordingly. The Giants moving back reminds me a lot as a contrast to what happened in the 2016 draft when they kind of got stuck at pick 10 and wound up taking Eli Apple, which obviously didn't work out, but they couldn't get out of 10. And it sounds like Dave Gettleman had contingency plans set up. If the top three receivers are gone by the time the Giants pick at 11, they had an escape hatch that weren't going to let to what happened in the 2016 draft. And that was a Jerry Reese draft. That was not Gettleman, but a recent memory in the organization about what had happened when you get stuck there. So um, I thought that was that comparison also kind of came to mind in thinking of that situation, Connor. Yeah. um, I I don't know. I I just, uh, I I think it was good for them, you know, and I, I think that you and I are on the same page that Gettleman, the criticism goes from like very quickly goes from like kind of a gentle poking fun to like, semi-unfair you know uh, kind of based on 
a pretty strong track record altogether of, you know, he did take the Panthers to the Super Bowl. He built a really good team there. Um, he was a driving force behind some of the Giants' better teams. Um, the two Super Bowl wins in the uh, in the 2000s among them. And so, I don't know. I, I think this team is going to be good this year. And I think that the Bears, depending on what happens with the Packers, have another chance of, you know, pu- pushing the limits there, maybe even above just that second wild card, so they don't have to play in the in the slime game this year. Yeah, the slime game. We're going to get back to that later in the show. I can't wait. Um, so, number five, in non-draft news, Jenny, Thursday Night Football heads to Amazon Prime exclusively which means football peppered with recommendations for great blue light reducing glasses and essential oils. While the money is probably substantial, is there a risk for the league to start drifting off its home base on network television? What say you? Yeah, so this is interesting. Per the reports today, the shift happen is happening a year sooner. So it's happening in 2022 instead of 2023. Uh, as we discussed right before the show began, the word exclusively is being thrown around a lot. And I, I guess we both kind of want a little bit more mm-hmm. clarity on what exclusively actually means. But Thursday Night Football has long been a tough spot, in large part because of the relative lack of quality of the games, because it's not always the, the high-profile matchups. It's players playing on a short week. And... It's just been not the the window that networks expected it to be. So now Amazon steps in and potentially can seize a foothold and an opportunity to expand their partnership. So I, I'm interested to see how this works, Connor. I am too. Um, you know, it wouldn't be a problem for me. Uh you know, we have uh, Amazon Prime connected to the TV mostly uh, to watch Daniel the Tiger, uh, but I'm sure I could very easily switch from Daniel the Tiger to uh, Thursday Night Football at 8 o'clock on Thursdays, and that wouldn't be a problem for me. I know, for example, like, you know, and I'm not calling out any age groups in particular, and I think everybody's different, but I know, you know, just for example, like my parents don't have you know, Wi-Fi or a streaming service and or Netflix or any desire to do any of that. And I think that if you exclusively go in that direction, um, you're you're cutting off, um, I think, a large portion of fans. And I think you're overestimating how many of them are going to go through the process of like, you know, and again, I'm I'm speaking in generalities here, but having their kids come over and set up their Roku or set up their Wi-Fi or look up all this stuff and, you know, I, I just I, I don't see it happening. You know, I think that there are probably some people that are just like, meh, all right, well, I'm uh I'm gonna watch something else on Thursdays from now on. So goodbye. Yeah, I, I think that is a potential. I think there are a lot of people for whom it would not be possible. Maybe you don't want to support Amazon. Maybe you don't have the tech savvy to figure that out. Um, so we're seeing the NFL kind of adjust its audience in a way that they clearly think will be long-term beneficial. But in the short term, there may be some growing pains. It's interesting because they are kind of losing the foot race for you know, generation, what are we? We're, we are millennials. Yeah. I mean, I'm an old begrudgingly. millennial. Yeah. I feel like we're 
at the edge of millennial. And then there's like two or three below us now. There's yeah. a Gen Z and Gen a Gen Z. I don't know what's after Gen Z. Don't they go to like the top of the alphabet again? Like, isn't it like Gen AA or something? I'm not oh. really sure. All right. Well, uh, you know, because I remember reading like, I think it was a morning consult did a poll and like the NFL is like a distant fourth or fifth in terms of the sports uh, fandom. You know, uh, people don't really outside of fantasy football are really only casually interested and. Uh, so it's interesting. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I think that uh, moving to a web-based streaming service, you know, while it might get you a few cable cutters in the other category, I don't think really nets you anything. Although I'm sure that there are very, um, uh, very much starched shirt uh, business suited types who have done the math on this and are going to uh, let us know that we're wrong about it in some way, shape, or form. All right, Connor, I've sought clarity on this. <laughs> Gen Z is through 2010. And so anyone after 2010 is Gen Alpha. Oh, great. Millennials got such a uh, 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 got such a bad rap for being self-focused. Imagine Generation Alpha. <laughs> you know? Well, your children are Generation Alpha. Jeez. Well, apparently, according to what I just Googled, <laughs> Gen Alpha is still very young, but is on track to be the most transformative age group ever. <laughs> so... Spoken we'll like true older people talking about right. their kids that they know nothing about them outside of their ability <laughs> to color and put stickers on paper right now. Transformative. Yeah. But you're right. The, the younger viewing audience you're talking about would, would still firmly be Gen Z. Gen Alpha is still a little young to ha- be having um, platform viewing preferences. So, <laughs> my, my Gen Alpha d- uh, does run around the house saying Alabama's number one. Uh, oh she, wow! She picked up from somewhere though, so there is a there is some hope for some uh, some football fandom uh, around there. Somewhere. Well, I was with my my friend's uh, Gen Alpha children yesterday, and um, she was describing how they were trying to get uh, her son to use the iPad for educational things, you know, different educational programs on the iPad, and he goes, "Well, it's not working." <laughs> and it was just like hilarious because he's four and then he went on to say that he wants to watch all of his shows and not the educational programs on the ipad so you know what these gen alphas connor they have a they do have a bright future i have to say well we can only hope because uh, you know someone's <laughs> got to take care of us jenny you know um all right so Let's go to the uh, Oracle and the Frentis consensus as we close out the show. Um, so uh, to double back to last week, uh, I'm, I was very heartwarmed to know uh, that uh, Jenny did give me points, partial points, for my Oracle coming true last week, which was that somebody was going to change pre-draft fashion as we knew it. Um, and I, we had some bold hopes. We had hopes mm-hmm. for maybe a green screen for maybe a zoom related, um, fashion statement. And I was very disheartened, uh, the more that I saw this stuff coming and going like, you know, Trevor Lawrence in a very understated olive sort of get up there. Um, you know, if anything, Chase Lawrence was the one that really stole the show. I thought uh, fashion wise, Trevor's artist brother with the cheetah sweater and, and the hat and just really did look on point. I thought, um, but 
you know, uh, Patrick Sertan had the PlayStation controller necklace, which I believe lit up, right? It was it was jewelry and lighting. There was lighting oh, involved in that, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I didn't realize that. I just thought that was super creative because his initials are PS2. Hold on. I'm going to confirm here. Um, but I thought it lit up. Um, and okay, Potentially so. And he, he had uh, his loafers matched. There were the PlayStation controllers on the loafers. But the necklace. So I think the necklace counts. I mean, that was an unusual item that we haven't seen before. I think that was a, a big step forward for fashion. Yeah. No, I thought it was good. Um, you know, do you remember, too, there was the year I think we might have I might have just come on the NFL beat, um, but when the the suit liners became a big thing, like you right. had to look at what the liners in the suits was, and that I feel like was the last big advancement. And I think we're ready for digital ad space in the suit liners. Oh, that's so, true. Yeah. And producer Shelby mentions that Quiddy Pay had the Black Panther inspired look, which was mm. very timely and very yes. cool. So there were some really good inspirations this year, Connor. Maybe it wasn't quite the level of bending the norms but i do think you get partial credit all right i'll take it um so my oracle this week uh is is a little less exciting um but i would say that uh uh you know following everything that we've seen here um sort of an obvious next step there is i think we're going to get uh a real pickup in the uh, veteran free agent offensive line market um, at this point, now that all the teams have seen who they're getting and not getting, I think that um, there's really going to start to be some heat on, uh, I believe, uh, Villanueva, they were talking about possibly going to Baltimore. I don't know if that's happened yet, um, but I, I think I saw that um, shoot around the rumor mill at some point. Um, and But you have Eric Fisher available. You have Mitchell Schwartz available. And so I think that there's going to be um, some jostling as far as that's concerned now, because there, there are still a few teams out there, right, that everyone's looking around and saying, well, you know, why didn't we do this? Or, you know, why isn't this person available? But um, the reason might be that your team is kind of out there sniffing on, you know, Russell Okung is available, Eric Fisher, Trey Turner, um, uh, Alejandro Villanueva. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of, a lot of good guys out there who can, uh, who can come in and probably step in. And I think we're going to start to probably see a little bit of bidding involved for, for those guys there. That's smart, Connor. There's always some kind of market that waits until post-draft to really pick up, or, or sometimes more than one. Uh, teams have draft needs that maybe they didn't fill, or maybe they didn't like who was available at that position when it came their turn to pick, and so they turn to the veteran free agent market. So I think that makes a lot of sense to keep an eye out in the coming weeks. All right. Uh, and now it's time for our favorite uh, part of the show, uh, the, where commenters say uh, the heart and soul of the program comes from, the Vrentis Consensus. Jenny, what uh, what do you have for us this week? All right. I have a two-part Vrentis Consensus. The second is building off of our discussion on the Monday morning podcast, which if you don't subscribe to that feed, you should. But a more fully formed thought. I think part of the reason that this year's draft broadcast felt weird was because we were going back from last year where we had all of these fantastic at-home moments and we were returning to the setting of under the dome and the fans standing there and people walking across the stage it just felt played out and this is no indictment on the people who were the commentators they they gave fantastic information both on the ESPN and NFL network broadcast that is a 
fantastically difficult job to be able to talk smartly about all of the different prospects, to remember names, stats. I, I don't know how they keep them straight. But just in terms of the overall setting of the draft, I think we need to shake up draft broadcasts a little bit more. So you can have all of the experts like Daniel Jeremiah, Mel Kuyper, Lewis Riddick. You can have all of their voices but, but let's mix in some, some different elements. Well, I don't know why we were so quick to revert back to the same formulaic draft. It seemed like last year was so refreshing that it was an invitation to do something differently. And you mentioned, Connor, the slime broadcasts. And I think that's the kind of thing we're thinking about. I mean, maybe there's a parallel broadcast that can engage younger viewers. But even the main broadcast... I think we need to shake it up a little bit. I talked uh, about my frustration with the ambient noise, that it was hard to hear the discussion about the players because there were various hosts or fans or musical performances in the background. I just think the whole thing needs a reset, and uh, I would like to see some more creativity infused into the draft broadcast. I couldn't agree more. Um, And I was thinking about that this weekend when... You know, because I think that, you know, everybody, if whether you live with someone or you have parents or um, friends who aren't interested in football, but sort of cross your paths during the draft, like the draft is such a can be such an incredibly um, beautiful narrative driven thing. Um, And it can be um, a teaching moment and it can be like all these things to suck people into football. But instead, we've sort of adopted the default as this sort of um, inclusive chatter of like, oh, this guy's a real mauler and he's a blah, blah, blah and and blah, blah, blah. And like nobody knows what that means, you know? And I think that there's been a lot of times where I've seen like an opportunity for and again, ESPN was roundly criticized for this last year and for for good reason. I think that they leaned too heavily on a certain kind of narrative for, uh, you know, for players. And, you know, it was more about this, you know, what horrific thing happened in their past. And, you know, but I do think that there's a chance to tell entertaining, enlightening stories about players coming out of college and into the draft um, that you know, make people want to root for them and also make people understand the mechanics of football. Like, I think this is a good way to have a bird's eye view of the draft. And you mentioned the Nickelodeon thing. And I think what was so good about it was that it was for once something that just didn't take itself so seriously. You know, we could assume that somebody watching um, uh, isn't up to date and uh, and studied up on the uh, on the third down analytics debate, you know, and all this stuff. And we don't have to have haughty chatter about it. We can have an interesting talk about it, you know, where we can introduce it to people in a new way. And I think the draft is the same way. You could really have an opportunity to to have a lot of fun with it, to introduce people to players and not in a way that like makes them uncomfortable or feel stereotyped or anything like that. And I don't know. I, there's just there's a long way to go there, and I agree. There's a lot of information. It's a Sisyphean task to put this thing on every year, but there's always room for improvement. And the second part of my Brenda's consensus is, Connor, you should give yourself proper credit. Let's dismiss this recount talk. This was not a fraudulent <laughs> count. You won the dra- mock draft challenge, and you should take proper credit for it. Well, that's uh, that's very nice of you to say. Um, I, I'll I'll think about it. Um, as you were telling me that, um, and I was about to close everything down, I just sometimes you get alerts for new stories posted. And you and I used to work for NJ.com, and uh, 
in the Star Ledger, and they just posted a real heat seeker of a Dear Abby that I somehow got a notification for. Um, so if anybody's interested in checking that out, Dear Abby, my engagement to the town bad boy is drawing some warnings. What should I do? So, oh, wow. Yeah, well, that was so. that was quite a uh, veer off course, Connor. Didn't expect the <laughs> didn't expect the Brentus consensus to go there, but um, maybe your gift for the mock draft challenge would be like uh, a subscription publish, to Dear Abby yeah, I was would say, be do they nice. Publish yeah. the Dear Abby columns like in a book. She had uh, again. This is going to go way <laughs> off the rails here, and we should just close out. But Dear Abby, then right, her sister was like her arch rival, right? And they both had advice columns. But, yeah, right. I think that sounds right. Yeah, it's been a while since I've looked at the Dear Abby, but maybe if you have a pressing football question, you can write into the Weekside Podcast. We'll do Dear a Connor. Dear, dear Jenny, a Dear Shelby. We could get producer Shelby in here to uh, to impart some maybe wisdom. We should I start know. a new segment. I love it. All right. The sky's the limit have, in season yeah. three. So it's just a reminder, you know, write in weeksidepod at gmail.com. We're Perfect. always, we're always available. We're always accepting mail. So yes. All right. Well, the Weekside podcast is me, Jenny Vrentis and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer songwriter, Ryan Harris Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. 